seats. Welcome to everyone. We are still in January, so it still counts as the beginning of the new year, doesn't it? We are starting a new Bible book study, and so that's what we're jumping into today. We're going to get into this awesome book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians, and uh, today is just going to be an introduction. We're going to get into the introduction of the whole book, look at a few verses, and and that's going to be really important to set in the context. So uh, you can take your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, and we'll get there in a second as you're doing that. Let me just lead us. We'll pray and ask God to be our teacher today. So Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we do rejoice in all of the things that you're doing in our hearts and our lives. And I just want to pray, Lord, for each and every one of us here. I do pray, Lord, that, that we would just empty ourselves of ourselves, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to fill us and to guide us and to teach us today. Lord, everybody here has their own situation. Everybody here has their own circumstances. Some people are here for the very first time or second or third time. Some people here, for you know, they come regularly. Some people have some real trouble going on in their life right now, and other people are doing great. Yet your word is applicable to all of us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would make the right application. I pray that each of us would hear exactly what you want us to hear. And I pray that each of us would not be able to walk out of here without responding to your voice as you give it to us. We know you're going to do this. We thank you in advance, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to begin this Bible study, and it is going to take us a good bit of time. And um, you may be curious as to why or how I decide which books that we're going to be studying next. And quite frankly, it is a lengthy process of prayer and trying to figure out what I believe would be most beneficial to our church, where we're at, and the things we need to learn while we systematically go through different books of the Bible. Thankfully, this church is a church with a history of studying through the books of the Bible. If you've been a member of this church for a long time, you've had many years walking through many books of the Bible, and that is a great blessing. Uh, But the way I want to start this all off, I have this statement in your notes, is, is that a couple of years ago we studied the book of Romans, and Romans reveals the doctrine of salvation. So it's heavy theological, doctrinal book describing all the ins and outs of what this idea of what the theologians call soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. But 1 Corinthians, which comes immediately after Romans, rather describes the application of salvation. So what we're going to see in the book of 1 Corinthians is not a book that's all about doctrine and theology. We're not going to get deep into the waters of of theology and doctrine. What we're going to get deep into are the waters of how we live it out. And I don't know about you, but those are the areas that are much more practical, obviously. Those are the areas that affect me more every single day. Those are the things that are really going to be able to help you as you're facing real-life decisions. So many of you here already know a good bit about what God desires, what His will is from the Scriptures. Some of you may be new, and you'll learn as we go. But the thing is, is, is that I know when I think of myself, the, the thing that concerns me the most about one day facing the Lord in the judgment seat is not that I didn't know enough. The thing that concerns me the most about that day is that I haven't necessarily done all the things I already know. And the Corinthian church, as revealed in this letter, is a church that, well, they made a lot of mistakes uh, who hadn't been there. And so what we can do is we can learn from those things. And so this is all about practical Christianity. It's all about how to live out your salvation, and if you will follow in this study, I promise that there will be information. This will help you as you make the decisions that are in front of you. So this morning is all about an introduction, and I promise we will study this entire book. There are 16 chapters, 
There are 437 verses, and if you care, there are 9,489 words. <laughs> and I only say that because we don't skip them. We go verse by verse, and we look at all of them. And it's going to take all year. It's going to take all year. And there's a lot of topics that are covered. We'll get to those even today in overview. Um, but really what I want to do is just set the context of this study. And so in order to set the context today, and that's what today's really all about, um, you need to understand the beginning of the Corinthian church. And so if you've got one hand at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just hang on to that and flip back to Acts chapter 18. Because in Acts chapter 18, we have the story of the Apostle Paul together with Silas and Timothy on his second missionary journey when he first lands in the city of Corinth. And, and the, I believe the verses should be coming up on the screen, but at least verse number one says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. He came to Corinth. And so verses two and three describe how Paul stayed in the home of two people that are mentioned in other places, Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, he had the same profession. He was a tent maker by trade. They were tent makers by trade. Paul paid his own way as a missionary as he made his journeys throughout that world at that time. And so he stayed in the, in the home of Aquila and Priscilla, verses 2 and 3. Now we have a map of where Corinth is. And in the map of Corinth, you'll see that it is very close to Athens. Okay, so that narrow strip of land is called an isthmus. And the isthmus gathers two larger strips of land together. And so Athens, Paul would have just left Athens in, in Acts 17, and he travels to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. So the southernmost portion of the country of Greece, it is a city today. And Corinth, as a result of its location, is a major trade city. It's a port city, so there was a lot of commerce that went on in that city. And you'll see in a little bit that there's a lot of traffic. It's a key city and it's very important to some of the dynamics of the difficulties and the challenges they had in their lives. We see in verses 4 and 5 that there was, a, there was a synagogue there. So there was an existing Jewish population. It says also that Aquila and Priscilla, who previously lived in Rome, were expelled out of Rome. They found their home in Corinth. There was a lot of Jewish people that were living in this area, so there was an existing synagogue we read all through the book of Acts how it was says that it, as Paul's manner was, as he would go into a new city, where did he find the audience to begin preaching Jesus Christ? He always began with the Jewish audience in the synagogue. Why? They already had a pre-existing knowledge of God, of the Old Testament. They had a pre-existing knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. They were already believers in God. They just weren't yet saved. They didn't understand that Jesus Christ was the Messiah fulfilling all of the prophecies. So he starts by preaching in the synagogues, and it says that some of them believed. In fact, if you jump down to verse number 8, it mentions one man named Crispus, and he was a, a chief ruler in the synagogue, and he became a believer. So the Holy Spirit was working, and people were getting saved, but yet in verse number 6, it talks about other people who opposed him. And there was some opposition that came up against him, and, and in fact, it, it became so severe that Paul just made the declaration I'm going to the Gentiles. In other words, I'm tired of you guys having opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and you just don't care, and you're mad about it. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and take the gospel to people who have never one time had the opportunity to hear it. Amen? I mean, that's what we should be all about, too. Now, people all around us who have heard the gospel a lot, I'm not saying that we don't give them opportunities, but there's a whole world of people out there, y'all, that have never one time had an opportunity. And Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And the reason I point that out is, 
is that although there are Jewish background believers in the church in Corinth, the vast majority of them would be Gentile background believers, kind of like the Church of Jesus Christ today, primarily made up of non-Jewish background people in the church. So what we're going to find is it's going to be very applicable to our life as well. Verse number 7, Paul continues his preaching ministry from the house of a man named Justice. His house was joined to the synagogue. Um, in that time, verses, in verse 8, a lot of people were getting saved. And they were responding to that salvation by biblical baptism as well. The opposition continued to get strong in verse number 9, uh, so much so that apparently Paul got fearful. And the Lord had to calm him down and say, don't be fearful. I've, I've got a lot of work for you to do. And so in verse 10, God explains to Paul what he needs for him to do. And what he needs for Paul to do is just to hang out there for a while because he says, I've got a lot of people in this city. And the idea is there's a lot of believers here that need to be taught. So Paul makes the decision, and it says that he stayed in Corinth teaching the believers for 18 months. Now, if you track Paul's movements in his missionary journeys, that's a long 10-year stay for the Apostle Paul, teaching them the Word of God amidst much, much persecution. And if you glance all the way down to verse 17, for example, it says, All the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Galileo, um, Galileo excuse me, cared for none of these things, the judge. And so you see Sosthenes, which we're going to see again in a second when we get to 1 Corinthians. The idea is God is doing some amazing things here. And I go through that quick review of Acts chapter 18. You can go back and read that in more detail yourself. Because I want you to learn this point, and this is in your notes. The Corinthian church began out of revival. It began out of revival of preaching Jesus Christ to whoever would listen, both Jews and Gentiles, and amidst great opposition. So there was great revival as the Word of God went forth with faith, and there was great opposition. Everything you should expect if you want to have revival as well. Paul remained there for 18 months teaching this church. And if you were to go back and compare how long did he say in Thessalonica, he only stayed there three Sabbath days. In other words, he was only in Thessalonica three weeks. He stayed in Corinth 18 months. So the thing I want you to get in this introduction is the idea that this church in Corinth, man, they had great beginnings. They had some amazing things that God was doing and he was changing lives as we're going to see as we get into this. So the very first point, there's only two points today, is the connection of Corinth. The connection of Corinth. Why study the book of 1 Corinthians now? Well, I believe it's because it's relevant to our condition today. And I'm going to look at that in a couple of different ways. The first is in their cultural life. Their cultural life. So I want you to understand a little bit about the culture of Corinth and see how it compares to a lot of what we deal with today. It's five specific areas we'll go through them pretty quickly the first is intellectually it's an intellectual society now so if you go back and you remember the map Corinth is just across that landmass from Athens and since it's right across from Athens obviously a similar culture prevailed that we learned about from Athens so if you go back to Acts chapter 17 we learn a little bit about the culture in Athens where it was heavily influenced by pagan Greek philosophy and rhetoric, debate. And so the people enjoyed getting together and learning and hearing new things. They enjoyed somebody getting up and arguing and debating the new things and them counterpointing and arguing with them. Uh, Paul, back in Athens in Acts 17 and verse 18, talks about these groups of philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics. 
And these are just different philosophies of life, of hedonism and exalting knowledge and, and the different ways that they live that out. And then in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 17, it talks about how they just love to gather together and hear new things. And Paul leverages that cultural situation to preach to them Jesus. They wanted to hear something new. He had something new to bring to them. This is not a group that had, in Athens, that had a lot of Jewish biblical background. So Paul just dealt with them as pagans, and he dealt with them according to their culture. One of the things about their culture is they were highly intellectual. Uh, one of the other things about their culture, number two, is they're also religious. They were religious. In fact, in Acts 17 and verse 22, when Paul sees all of these statues and idols, and they even had one that was written to the unknown God, which he leveraged to preach Jesus Christ, he calls the people in Athens. He says, I see that you are too superstitious. You're too superstitious. And other versions of the Bible might translate that as very religious. But the idea is they were religious, but they weren't saved. They had a faith and a belief to be spiritual, but they weren't biblical. And so in verse 23 of chapter 17, it says that they worshiped ignorantly. They worshiped ignorantly. So we have a group of people that were interested in spiritual things. They just weren't saved. They just didn't understand the gospel. And you know what? Before we go any further, can you just ask yourself, do you know the difference? Do you know the difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ and true born-again salvation? Because if you don't, man, today's the day to get that thing right. Jesus Christ doesn't offer you a religion. He offers you a relationship with a risen Savior who will come into your heart and your life and make you a new creature and give you new life forever. The Athenians didn't understand that, although they had their forms of pagan religion. Another thing about their culture, number three, is it was materialistic. So in your mind's eye, again, that map, it was a port city. And between Athens and Corinth was that isthmus, that narrow patch of land. But in that narrow patch of land, there was a canal. There still is. So that trade ships could pass from the Aegean Sea to the east to the Ionian Sea on the west. So think of the Panama Canal connecting the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. Instead of going all the way around, you can cut through. There was a lot of trade going on. There was a lot of um, money that was exchanging hands. There was a lot of movement of people in and out all the time. And so the danger is 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so it was a high trade commerce area, a lot of people coming and going, a lot of movers and shakers uh, which leads then to the next point in their culture, it was highly immoral. Highly immoral human culture in those days. Imagine a place where there's a lot of money to be made. Well, there's a lot of lying going on. There's a lot of theft. But you know what else there was? There was a lot of sexual immorality and looseness. And we're going to get into some of those kind of details before we're done studying the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, let me just throw this out to you. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but have you ever really noticed large cities that are located on large bodies of water? Have you ever noticed the lifestyle in large cities that are located on large bodies of water that have heightened levels of demonic activity and sexual looseness? Uh, that's something worth looking into. That's something worth looking into. And Corinth certainly is in that category. And if I was just going to summarize them and I put it as another point, the fifth point of their culture is that they were just very selfish. They were very selfish. In all of these areas, it was all about me. And let me just tell you something. When you view life that whatever happens is all about me, well, you're on shifting sand, friend. You're in a tough spot. 
And especially once you receive Christ as your Savior, if any of that carries over, well, that's going to be a problem. And that is something that we're going to see. So we think about our life today. What is our life today about? Well, we live in the information age. Probably most all of you have a supercomputer in your pocket right now. I mean, you have through Google and search engines, you can get all the information of all the things. You can learn new things every minute of every day for as long as you live and never exhaust the resource. I mean, there's stuff out there. And by the way, people who are learning things or people who get just a little bit of knowledge about something think all of a sudden that they're experts, right? And then they want to go and argue and debate with everybody else about how much they think they know, and they really don't know that much. But they just like doing it because it's kind of fun. And, you know, I've been guilty. I like jumping in there and having some fun and just go for it once in a while. I mean, it's just a part of kind of who we are. It's very similar to what we would have seen back in Corinth. By the way, if you don't think that that's the case, just go hang out at a college campus these days. I mean, those guys love that kind of stuff, right? They get just a little bit of a tidbit of something thinking they know stuff, but they want to get up all in your grill and tell you why they know more than you know. And by the way, they just have fun doing it, right? Well, it's just Corinth. That's just Corinth. I mean, that's what we see, and that's what's going on. Everybody's got something to prove. Everybody's trying to protest something, right? Uh, The age that we live in today is, is, I would call it, an age of great spirituality. Listen, man, there's no lack of spirituality going on in 21st century life. Uh, The problem is is that everybody's spiritual. It's just that not very many people are biblical, right? I mean, there's a lot of spirits. The Bible talks about a lot of spirits out there, but only one of them's holy, right? There's spirits everywhere you turn, right? I mean, go to a liquor store. What do they call those things? Spirits. Oh, what about that? I mean, they're everywhere. People are spiritual. That's why there's cults. That's why, you know, people are making money off the psychic hotline. I mean, you can go anywhere you want to go to Palmry. Everybody wants to get connected to their own version of some kind of a spiritual reality. What they don't want is the Lord Jesus Christ requiring repentance and righteousness in our lives. See, that's a huge difference. That's kind of like the way we live today. Do I really need to stand up here and preach to you how our society today is money hungry? Do I really need to talk about that? I mean, and as a result, what we see is rampant immorality and selfishness. I mean, I don't really need to spend time doing that. But what what we would have seen in ancient Corinth, well, it's very similar to what we see today. The connection of Corinth is the connection from their life, as the Lord would know, to our life today. And I want you to understand that because as we start diving into the details, going verse by verse through this book, I want you to see God, the Holy Spirit, will be trying to speak to you, friend, today with your issues in your life. This is not just a 2,000-year-old history book. The Word of God is alive, right? It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it's discerning your very thoughts and intents of your heart. So that's the cultural life, but they also had a church life, letter B. So the Corinthian church, as a result of coming out of that pagan culture, well, they were full of problems. Yes, they had a really good start with the revival, absolutely, but over time, something went wrong. Something went wrong. Uh, By the way, if you were to glance at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 9, First, the first letter to the Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul ever wrote. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 that he had previously written to them. Apparently, that letter was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we don't have a record of it in our Bible. But I'm just telling you that Paul had had previous interaction with them through letters. 
This is an ongoing relationship that they have. And so that's what we see. It's also written, this letter of 1 Corinthians, in response to a bunch of questions that they were asking. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 1, where it says, Paul says, Concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, and then he talks about the subject of marriage, and we'll get into that when the time comes. But they were asking Paul some questions, and so Paul writes this letter back, and he's answering some of the questions and dealing with some of the issues in their church life. What we really see is a term we apply to the church. It only appears in your Old Testament. This church was backslidden. They, were, they had slidden backwards they had gone backwards in their progress, okay? Something had gone wrong. Once the newness of the excitement of their new life in Christ had worn off, they found themselves going back to the old habits. That's a problem. They found themselves going back to being intellectual and religious and materialistic and immoral and selfish. Yes, even in the church. Because the issues of their old life carried over to their new life after salvation. You say, well, these things should not be so. Yes, of course they shouldn't, but come on, man, they do, and you know they do. Let me just point this out. In order to be truly born again, oh, and they were, they were. We'll see that clearly in the language in a second. In order to be truly saved... They had to have, this is, this is the required exchange with the Lord. They had to have totally and completely surrendered the control of their lives to Jesus Christ. Amen? If you're saved today, you did that. You made a deal. The Lord said, give me your life as it is with all the dirt, and I will give you my life, which is holy and perfect and pure and righteous oh, and eternal. And so they, absolutely, they made that decision. They gave the total control of their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But somewhere down the line, they took it back. They took back control of their own life. Certainly hoping the Lord wouldn't take back his life. He doesn't do that. He's not a liar. But that's what they did. And so we see passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual. Paul uses the word spiritual like spirit-filled, spirit-controlled, but rather as unto carnal or fleshly, even as unto babes in Christ. In other words, they had been around long enough and known the Lord long enough that they shouldn't be babes in Christ anymore. They should be grown but they're not grown because they've never actually responded to the Word of God. So what we can do is we compare it to the church in Laodicea. And if you've been with us last month in December, we did a study one week on the church in Laodicea out of Revelation chapter 3, and we're not going back there, but the church in Laodicea is the church that, well, they had some problems, didn't they? They were rich, and they were proud. But spiritually, they were shallow, and they were selfish. And God had nothing good to say about that church. And it represents the very last period of church time, church age history, before the rapture of the church. It represents the time in which we live. So that today, we who live in this last church period, having the advantage 
of more history behind us than anybody before us, we should be the most informed Christians that ever lived, right? We should have, be, we have the ability to leverage all of the knowledge that was ever attained prior, certainly if it's ever been put to print. A Christian from the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, if they ever wrote a book that taught you anything good from the Bible, you have the ability to get that book and read it and know what they knew. You don't have to figure it out yourself. Somebody else figured it out already. Not only that, because of history, we can look back on prophetic events. Last week we talked about 1948, Israel becomes a nation. Well, if you were alive in 1900, that was just an idea. But we can look back and know we should be the most informed people ever in the last days. And yet the general condition of the church, as God describes in Revelation 3, 14 to 22, is that it was lukewarm, carnal, selfish. You see, you need to understand that the Bible's like a mirror. You look into it to see yourself, right? That's what it says in James chapter 1 and verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, the glass being a looking glass, literally a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. See the parallel? Looking into a glass, looking into the perfect law of liberty. The Bible is your mirror, spiritually speaking. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So for us, church, in the 21st century, we are going to use the book of 1 Corinthians as that mirror. We set the stage to show why their life mirrors our life, and so the letter to them will be a letter directly to us in the 21st century. And so we will notice the applications to our context with common themes and problems as we go through. The next thing I want you to understand in this point two in your notes is the commentary of 1 Corinthians. The commentary of 1 Corinthians. And what we're going to do is just read the first nine verses of chapter number one, and we'll use that. Paul's introduction to the letter is our introduction, and we're going to look at the main theme, basically, coming through. I'll give you a second. 1 Corinthians chapter number one, verse number one. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, that's who I referenced in Acts 18, 17, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see that over and over and over again? Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Jesus Christ. There's an emphasis here, and they needed to remember it. So that's the way we're going to start. We're going to look at three different things, three main things we need to learn from Paul's introduction. The first one is their testimony. 
the testimony. And so we saw uh, Sosthenes, again from Acts 18, he was a guy who was beaten in judgment as a result of his faith in Jesus Christ. He was the chief ruler of the synagogue. It says in the first couple of verses that it was written unto the church of God. Written unto the church of God. Uh, that's not a, a, you know, denomination, Protestant denomination. Uh, the church of God, as it used in the scripture, of course, means the body of Christ. The church of God is the body of Christ. And it is the body of Christ, in this case, at Corinth. So it's a local church. It's written to a local church. So it's written to truly save people who gather together in a local church, and it says called to be saints. And I just want to remind everybody, when you read Paul's letters, that biblically speaking, every single truly born-again person, man, woman, boy, and girl, is a saint. And you are a saint not in the Roman Catholic sense, that if you live a good enough life for so many years, they make you a saint, and then they make little you know, necklaces to hang around and you pray to the saint and, and that sort of a thing. That is not a biblical application. The biblical application is each and every one of us who has ever put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation are made holy by the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, we are saints, all of us. And so it's written under the church of God, the body of Christ assembled in a local church who are called to be saints so how do we pull this out? Well, this is, again, very elementary, but I want you to see this is their testimony. And their testimony is, this is in your notes, these are truly born-again believers assembling together in a local church evidenced by a changed life. So these are not people who were deceived. These are not people, because we're going to read about some real carnality. We're going to read about some real problems in their life. And here's what our tendency is today. We have a real problem today, and that's why this book's going to be good for us is we're going to find ourselves doing the things that Paul tells the Corinthians that they shouldn't be doing. So, for example, at one point we'll come across where it says that if you judge yourselves among yourselves, you're not wise. Uh, we're not to compare ourselves to each other. Uh, people constantly want to say, okay, well, I'm not that good at that, but you ought to see that guy, right? And I never really understood exactly why the people who want to compare themselves to other people, always choose other people who are trouble. <laughs> I mean, why don't you compare yourself with somebody like Martin Luther? <laughs> why don't you compare yourself with somebody like William Carey? I mean, nobody ever says that, right? Hey, I'm going to compare. Oh, never mind. <laughs> nobody does that. We want to compare ourselves among ourselves. And here's what we would want to do with the Corinthians. We'd want to look at all the trouble they had in their lives, and we're like, they weren't even saved. That's what we'd want to say. You want to look at people in the church that maybe are suffering some of the troubles that you see the Corinthian church suffering, you're going to want to snap to a judgment and say, how is that possible they're even saved? All I'm trying to point out to you is these are truly born-again people called to be saints, the church of God that met in a local church. Be careful. Be careful. They had a good testimony. They started off well. It says in verses 4 and 5, in everything you are enriched by him you're enriched in the area of utterance that's speaking and in knowledge that's learning right and so it's as i said earlier they're true born again believers assembling in a local church but evidenced by a changed life how is their life changed well in your notes they shifted their interests from philosophy to the word and from debate to witnessing Man, that's a good testimony. 
These are people who leveraged what they had in their culture, learning new things, to learning the Bible. They leveraged the thing they had in their culture, rhetoric and debate, into telling people about Jesus. Man, that's fantastic. You are enriched in Him, by Him, in all these things, in utterance and in knowledge. So that it says in verse 6, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Boy, don't you want them to say that about you? Don't you want people to say about you that the testimony of Jesus Christ is not just a question about you? It's not just what you hope is true about you, but it's actually confirmed in you. Well, how is it ever going to be confirmed? Well, it's confirmed because, well, your life showed it, right? It's evidenced by a changed life. Here's the real question, and some of you may have struggled with this in the past, and maybe you're struggling with it today. How can I know if I'm truly saved? You ever wonder that? Uh, People sometimes will get up and say, man, I've received Christ as my Savior, and I am 100% sure that when this life is over, I'm going to have my home in heaven. And most people in this church, anyway, that had any training would say, amen. We know that to be true. Somebody who's new might come in and say, well, I mean, mean, that's kind of arrogant. I mean, they might really think. I mean, how can you really know? How do you know? that tomorrow, the next day, you're not going to just cast it all aside and be a reprobate. You can't know for sure. Nobody knows for sure. That would be the logic, right? Uh, You know what? There is a way that you can know for sure. And if you struggle with those questions, by the way, you're in good company. We've all struggled at times with those questions. Don't feel bad. Here's the thing. You do not know that you're saved just because... Somebody says, how do you know you're saved? If you say, well, because on a certain day I prayed a prayer. Well, a lot of lost people pray prayers. I mean, maybe you meant it. I don't know. I mean, that's fine. That's good. We should be praying. (laughs) But that in of itself is not necessarily the answer, right? I prayed a prayer. You might say, well, man, my family, we've been religious our whole lives. I was raised in church. and Oh, wait a minute. Remember what Paul said in Athens? I think you're too superstitious. Religion alone, that's not enough, right? Well, you say, well, look, I believe in God. I've always believed in God. Oh, yet James says even the devils believe and tremble. Are they saved? No, of course not. So, in other words, you better have a better answer to bring the confirmation of assurance of how you know that you know that God forbid if this physical life ended soon, you have your home in heaven. You know that you have it. And you know how you get the assurance of salvation? You get the assurance of salvation by having a changed life. You can say all you want. You can say the right things. You can be highly intellectual, answer the questions right, check the boxes right, show up here and pray and do all those things. But if deep down, if your daily life has not changed, such that you actually love God and His Word like you never did before, you despise self and sin like you never did before, and you systematically begin to see that your life is changing by virtue of the decisions you're making to obey the Lord in believer's baptism, to obey the Lord in participation in the church, to study His Word because you enjoy hanging out with Him, to serving within the body, to telling your friends about Jesus. If these things are not a reality in your life, well, then you have a good reason to wonder. You have a good reason to wonder. You don't earn salvation by doing those things. These are evidences of a true salvation. Do you have that? 
Has your life changed since you believed? And so many of you would say, man, look, I know I'm a long way from where I ought to be, but I'm a long way from where I used to be, amen. That's a testimony of Christ confirmed in you. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. It goes on in verse 7, it says that ye come behind in no gift. There's no gift lacking in the Corinthian church context. This was a gifted church. And when we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, we'll talk in detail about spiritual gifts. Of all the spiritual gifts that were available, the Corinthian church was missing none of them. None of them. In other words, and this is in your notes, they channeled their efforts into ministry. They had all the gifts. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as we will see when we get there, a year from now, <laughs> you can go ahead and read ahead. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to the believer to minister to others. That's what they're given for. Uh, don't confuse yourself, friend, in the thinking that God gave you a spiritual gift for you. Your spiritual gift is not for you. Your spiritual gift is for me and for everybody else. And my spiritual gift isn't for me. It's for you. And that's how the body works. And that's what we're going to see as we get into our next point, And that's letter B, the theme of this entire book. The theme. So the problem is that over time they reverted back to their old lives, right? Apostasy. And this letter is written to correct the problems that have come up. And so in your handout, you have seven areas of failure. And really, these seven topics are the seven stages of this downward spiral that they were going down. And these seven areas are the seven main themes. Now, there's a lot of details within each one that they deal with. So in the first four chapters, it deals with interpersonal relationships. And in the next two chapters, it deals with sexual relationships. And in chapter 7, it deals with marriage relationships. And 8, 9, and 10 deal with idolatry and materialism and 11 deals with authority and submission, and 12 through 14, spiritual gifts, and 15 and 16, the resurrection. And in each of these cases, and we'll look at them all in detail throughout the year, the underlying cause of problems in all these areas is selfishness. That's the underlying cause of all of your interpersonal relationships at all of those levels, of all your dealings with money and with people and with church and with serving and with authority, all this stuff stems from the root cause of just thinking of yourself first and then the group later. That's a real problem. Do you remember Christmas? Our Christmas series was joy. Jesus first, others second, you come last. That's how you get true joy, right? You put yourself last. When you put yourself first, well, you're going to have problems. And that's what this church had. Uh, so the solution to the problem in all areas of life is, and I wrote it this way, we is greater than me. We collectively together. And so the tagline on our series, 1 Corinthians, we just call it the power of community. Uh, we are created in Christ Jesus, not to be Lone Ranger Island Christians. We are connected one to another. We are a body. We are all in this together, y'all. And you might look around the room and you might look around the community and you might find people in Jesus Christ that you don't prefer. Well, you're just going to have to get over yourself and learn to deal with it. 
You're going to have to learn how to make decisions in your life and actually leverage the gifts God has given you so that we can be a better whole and quit worrying so much about me as an individual. Because if I'm operating in the Spirit, I'm going to help you in every way I possibly can. And I'm not worried about me because if you're operating in the Spirit, you're going to make sure I'm as whole as I can be as well. And that's the way Christianity is designed to be. This is the theme of all seven of those areas of failure. We will see this theme laid out in every chapter. And I'm going to give you a few examples walking through it right now. In every single chapter, you're going to see how God emphasizes the whole, the body of Christ together as the priority over you as an individual. We is greater than me. Community is greater than individuality. And boy, aren't we an individualistic society today. And it carries right over into the church. So that's what we see. And we're going to study how that selfish attitude brings about all these problems listed in this chapter, in this church, excuse me, in this book. So for example, let me give you a rundown real quick. And I'm just going to go through this real fast. It's just for you to think about. Chapter number one starts out, it's all about divisions among Christians. I mean, right out of the gate. I mean, the very next verse we'll look at next Sunday. Verse number 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Right out of the gate, he goes right after the root cause. And the root cause is you're thinking about you instead of your brother. We better be planning and thinking and making decisions on the basis of the benefit of the body, not us as individuals, and then everything will work out just fine. Chapter number two, we're going to see that the gospel message is not about my ability to share it. It's about God and his ability to get it out through me. Chapter number three, verse number nine, for example, is a good verse. It says, for we are laborers together with God. Ye all are God's husbandry, ye all are God's building. We, we like to say how my body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in me. And I guess there's some truth to that because the Holy Spirit is the form of Jesus Christ living in me as a new believer. But we'll walk through this book of 1 Corinthians and every time it talks about the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, it uses those plural pronouns, ye, instead of thou, the singular pronoun. You'll see it as we go through it. Uh, chapter 4 deals with people judging one another and all the problems associated with that. Chapter number 5 deals with some pretty disgusting sexual sin which destroys unity and requires the church to act together in unity in the discipline and removal of such an offending brother. Chapter number 6, disputes are to be handled within the body of the church together and not aired out in public courts. Chapter 7 talks about how we need to be content in the marriage condition that you find yourself in. Uh, quit thinking so much about yourself that you just can't live in the situation God placed you in. And just be content with Jesus Christ in the condition. Do you have a wife? Seek not to be loosed from her. Are you loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. Those are some of the things we see in chapter number 7. We need to be content in who we are in Christ. Chapter number 8 talks about eat, eating meat offered to idols get into the idea of idolatry but you know what the real bigger issue is and we'll talk man we're going to spend some time camping out talking about liberty in christ but yet liberty in christ has to be balanced with love for the brethren and if i exercise my liberty 
and it offends you, and my attitude is, get over it. That's your problem. I'm pretty selfish, aren't I? And when the Lord says, you know what? It's better for me, even though an idol is nothing and the meat offered to it is just good meat, it's better for me to not eat it if I know it offends you. Because I'm thinking about we more than I'm thinking about me. See how that works? All through this book. Chapter 9, Paul defends his apostleship as the servant of all. And what does he do in that description? He describes how he willingly sacrifices privileges and benefits that he could enjoy in his personal life for the sake of everybody else. For the sake of everybody else. Chapter 10 talks about the communion of Jesus Christ, which is to be taken with unity together. Chapter 11 is your role as a part of a greater whole. Chapters 12, 13, and 14, spiritual gifts I already described are not for your personal benefit. They're for the body's benefit. Chapter 15, Jesus Christ died for everybody, for the whole church, for his body to come together as a unit. And chapter 16 deals with the issue of giving. And giving is all about caring about somebody else more than caring about yourself. If ever there was one root cause that affects all the problems we have in our life, it's selfishness. It's selfishness. This is it. Get over yourself. Hide your life in Jesus Christ. Let Him be your sufficiency. Let Him meet your needs. And if you can't do that, you're probably not spending time with Him like you should. You're probably allowing sin to hinder that relationship. I think I remember somebody saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, that's in there. So the testimony, the theme, and very briefly, the last one is the timing. Verses 7 and 8. Notice. Waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ in the Bible is the judgment seat of Christ for the church. That day, the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ for believers is not far off. Of course we don't know when, but there is a really good chance it is in our lifetime. Ridiculously large chance. And he absolutely will return one day likely in our lifetime, to take us home. But first, there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of each and every truly born-again Christian to give account of the things that they have done in their body after salvation, whether they be good or bad. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. It will bring it to light. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, we're active in ministry, but we're made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. God's paying attention and he's keeping track. And listen, he wants to know. Let me ask you a question. Shouldn't we who are alive in the last days, the last minutes of the last days of the last church period of Laodicea before the ever soon coming 
day of the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ be living our lives in the light of this truth? Should we not be assessing how we are walking and living and responding to the different circumstances around us in light of the fact that, oh, you know, really soon, <laughs> the Lord can split the sky and call us home and we think, yay, what a, what a day that'll be, how joyful it'll be. But yeah, in the air before we actually make it there, there's this day of reckoning. There's this time of giving account. That ought to put the healthy fear of the Lord into you. It does me. Paul, it did. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, he said. Better get busy before it's too late. So before we get into the details of 1 Corinthians, chapter by chapter, can I just exhort you today? If this has kind of hit you and you feel like, man, that is true of me. I live for me and I have not really taken into consideration others and I'm, I'm pretty selfish. I don't know who you are. The Holy Spirit may have put his finger on your heart. I don't know. If that's you, can I encourage you today? Man, t- get, get it right now. Take care of it today. Get it cleaned up now. And then come back and enjoy church for the next year. I mean, I mean why do you want to keep coming back and just getting hit in the head with, you know, the things you're refusing to do? Man, let's get it right now, amen? I mean, that today's the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time, amen? Now is the time that we need to respond to the word of the Lord. The Lord has given his word. A lot of you are here and you're like, man, I, I really think that I'm tracking. I think the Lord has worked in me and I think that I'm, I'm walking with him. Man, rejoice in that. That's fantastic. Let's pray for one another. Let's serve one another. Let's continue to consider the things and to provoke one another to love and to good works. Because others who are struggling, let me just tell you, brothers and sisters who are mature, they need you. They need you now more than ever. They need you to come alongside of them and to gird them up and to help them. They really do. But I'm just telling you, it's just good planning, man. Get right with God and enjoy the Bible study for the next year. That's just the way to go, knowing that you're on the right side of it. Okay, let's wrap it up for today. Let's pray.